Muskoka Bible Center, and uh, I had the great privilege of preaching there every day, so I had six sermons that I went through, and today what I was hoping to do was to preach all six to you in one, so uh, I'll try and get you home for the sixth inning of the Blue Jays game. I... (laughs) If it's a long game, you'll get in by, by seventh inning stretch. If not, well, you can just sort of catch the scores after. Uh, but what we did this week was a biblical theology of the gospel according to the Old Testament. So the goal was to help people to see, and this is what we're going to do today. I wasn't actually joking. You are going to get all six in one, but it will be a much smaller package, so don't worry. Uh, But uh, the idea was to help people to see, help you to see that everything that we need to know about God and, and His salvation that is given to us through Jesus Christ has all been recorded for us before we ever get to the New Testament Scriptures. And so, if we were to just take seriously God's Word up until Matthew, when we reflect on who Jesus is, then the theology and the wonder and the good news of the gospel of our salvation we could find. Now, obviously, with the coming of Christ and and with the writing of the apostles in the New Testament, these mysteries that are recorded for us in the Old Testament, they are opened up to us uh, in in a greater transparency. so So there are several times when Paul says, I'll tell you a mystery. Now, what a mystery is... Is, is not something that we can't understand. It's something that had been revealed, though concealed, in the Old Testament. And now that Jesus has come, that revealed, concealed truth, sounds like an oxymoron, but it's, it actually is not, has blossomed. And now we get to see it with greater brilliance. So the advantage that we have on the other side of the first coming of Jesus and on the other side of the writing of the New Testament is that all of these mysteries that are there in the Old Testament should be opening up to us if we would but have eyes to see. So as a launching off point for this morning, would you open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel at the very end, Luke chapter 24. And as you're searching for your page, would you please stand? What we're about to read is from the very first resurrection day. So Jesus has been crucified, he was buried, and he has come back to life bodily from the dead. He has uh, appeared to Mary Magdalene. We know that from John's Gospel. He has appeared to uh, two disciples on their way to the road to Emmaus. These were not two from the twelve. And now, he, he joins the eleven disciples. Judas has already committed suicide. And he joins the eleven disciples. And he stands there among them. And they are astonished. They can't believe what they see. Uh, and they're not sure what they see. They're not sure. Do, do they see the resurrected Jesus they, they want to believe that that is the case, and yet they cannot believe it for fear and amazement. And so he says, look, touch me, touch. A ghost does not have flesh 
and bones as you see that I have. And they still didn't believe. So he says, do you have anything here to eat? And so they gave him a fish, and he ate the fish. And actually, if you read all about uh, Jesus' resurrection appearance, he's often eating. I think maybe he's always eating. Uh, just to prove that he's, this is a bodily resurrection, the same body that was crucified on the cross and, and taken down and put in the tomb has come back to life. And, and God has added to that body the glory of resurrection. That's the context. So, Luke 24, we'll start in verse 42. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and he ate it before them. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me. In the New Testament? No, the New Testament did not yet exist. Everything written about me. In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we long to, to know what Jesus shared with them on that first resurrection day as He appeared with them and, and they touched Him and He ate fish in their presence and then He opened the Old Testament to them and He, he taught them so that mysteries revealed in the Old Testament, yet long concealed, would blossom in their sight and they would perceive and understand and glorify Your glorious, wonderful name. Lord, we know that we have access to this very Bible study because we are clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives he dwells in our hearts. He is our teacher. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite You today to, to begin to open the doors just a little bit further for us that we may look to Your Word, believe, and enjoy the Gospel of Your salvation. Lord, I pray that You would bless this congregation today. May my words be Your Word to Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What I want us to do today is to take a look at a very macro plot of the Old Testament. So what I did at MBC, Muskoka Bible Center, was we took, I took an initial sermon to basically show how all of salvation history from Genesis to Revelation is embodied by the life of Abraham. And, and someday, I, I just invite you to someday open your Bible to Genesis 12 and read from Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis 25. It's one quarter of the book of Genesis. And, and what I invite you to look for and to seek out is how the biography of Abraham is actually the very same plot and pattern of salvation history from Genesis to Revelation. 
And if you need some help for where would I get started, let me just encourage you to flip your Bibles over to Galatians 4. Start there, then go back and and start to try and piece it together. And if you have questions, come and speak to me. So I I can't get into that today, but then for the the following five sermons, what what we did is we just took a look one piece at a time in in five major sections, uh, the plot of the Old Testament. And the goal was to demonstrate that that very plot and pattern is the plot and pattern of the gospel that we believe in. So today, I'm going to approach this a slightly different way. We're going to look at ten things in the Old Testament. And and if you understand these ten benchmarks, then you understand a big picture of the Old Testament. We're going to go through that. And then we're going to look and see how that is the gospel that we believe in. That's the gospel of our salvation. So let's just begin. We, we begin in Genesis, and really Genesis sets everything up. Much theology or the foundation of theology begins in Genesis. But I want us to just recognize that in Genesis we have creation, and then we have the fall of humanity. At the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God deliberately, they introduced two things, two realities into human nature. The one was slavery to sin, and the second was exile from God. And I really believe that those two ideas, or the reversal of slavery and exile, is our gospel. The, the reversal of slavery and exile is also the, the major thrust of the Old Testament. What is God going to do about slavery? What is God going to do about exile? So we see that humanity can never actually reverse slavery and exile introduced in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. Slavery to sin, exile from God. So God calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and, and he says, I promise to make, you, uh, make of you a great name. You will have a great name. I will uh, make a great nation from you and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And the blessing that, that really God is speaking of to Abraham is freedom, deliverance from slavery and an end to exile. And in you, Abraham, God says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the rest of the book of Genesis is just the growth of Abraham's family. And we chart the the passing down of that promise through the generations. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. At the end of the book of Genesis, we're told there was a famine in the land. And so Jacob's family, which is the family that becomes the nation of Israel, goes to Egypt for food. Joseph, their brother, was already in Egypt, so they find a safe place with plenty of food to help this nation through which God will bless all the families of the earth to survive. The beginning of the book of Exodus, don't worry, we're going to pick up our pace here a little bit. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find that this family has grown from 70 persons up to about 2 million. 600,000 men descended from Jacob. So 2 million people roughly, that's an estimate, with women and children. And, And we're told that they've been enslaved by Pharaoh. So God remembers His people. He remembers His promise. And He raises up Moses. And Moses comes to deliver the people. After nine plagues, God says, I will send a tenth plague. And after this plague, Pharaoh will let My people go. 
That plague is the death of the firstborn in every house. And God says, but you, O Israel, and you, even you Gentile Egyptians, if you hear the words of my servant Moses and obey by faith, I will allow this, this last plague to pass over your house and I will deliver you from slavery. So, so this Passover that is instituted by God is God says, take a lamb, drain the blood from the lamb, take the blood from the lamb, put the, the blood on the, the lintel and the doorposts of your house. When the angel of death comes to take the firstborn in that house, he will pass over and not harm anyone in the house. That happens. Those who apply the blood of the lamb by faith are, are passed over. Pharaoh's son dies. Pharaoh says, leave us. Go worship your God. So Moses leads the people out of slavery. They come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh has changed his mind, so he he comes to take back the slaves by force, but the slaves pass through the waters of the Red Sea safely to the other side. They were slaves on on this side of the Red Sea. They're free on the other side of the Red Sea. And then when Pharaoh's army goes in after them, God causes the water to drown them. A great victory for God. This newly freed nation then makes its way to Mount Sinai where they enter into covenant with God. After having entered into covenant, receiving rules and and regulations for how they are to behave now that God has saved them, delivered them by grace, through faith. I think that's really important, right? Uh, They weren't saved by their works. Deuteronomy 9 uh, we'll, we'll say something very similar, looking forward to going to the promised land. But the, it wasn't that the slaves were without sin. It's that they applied by faith the blood of the Lamb. And by grace, in response to that faith, God delivered them out of slavery. So having come into covenant now, this is how you ought to behave having, having been delivered from sin. They were on their way to the promised land. Just a word here. God always speaks to us by law, but saves us by grace. Whether you're in Old Testament or New Testament. This dichotomy of the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace is a false dichotomy. In both Testaments, God speaks to us. He tells us, this is how I want you to behave. But don't think that by behaving that way, you can save yourself because you could never be good enough to achieve salvation. Therefore, God says, I want you to live this way, but that's not for your salvation. Your salvation comes first. I've saved you. Now, live this way. That's exactly what we see in Exodus. I've saved you from slavery. Now, live this way. So Jesus says to us, I'm getting into the second part of my sermon a little bit here, but uh, he says, if you love me, Go and do whatever you want. Does that sound like Jesus? No. He says, if you love me, I'll save you. But if you love me, obey my commands. Very interesting. On the way to the promised land, Israel lacked the confidence. They lacked the faith that they had in Egypt that they could actually go into the land and take it as God had promised. Therefore, God causes the entire Exodus generation to wander in the wilderness. But 40 years later, 
At the end of the Torah, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God says, okay, Moses, you've led my people this far. Now you're going to die without entering the land. And I'm going to raise up Joshua and he's going to lead my people into the promised land. And so at the end of the Torah, they're sitting there on the edge looking into the promised land ready to go in. The book of Joshua then has has Joshua leading God's people and Joshua goes into the promised land and there is a violent, bloody conquest as God commands Joshua and and Israel to go in and to take the land and to let no male, uh, male, man, woman, boy, girl, child, baby live. Take the land. And destroy the inhabitants that used to live there. It's very hard for us as Christians to get our heads around that. But that's the book of Joshua. So Joshua goes in and imperfectly takes the land. So there are are bits of people groups that he doesn't conquer. But it is a massive conquest. And Israel takes the land. After a period of judges, we see that uh, God calls David to establish a kingdom. In 2 Samuel 7, we're told that this kingdom will be an eternal and enduring, a forever kingdom. We have a problem. Even though God has given these unconditional promises to David, the people keep sinning. The kings sin. The priests sin. The people sin. Whether they're rich or poor, a tradesman or or a farmer, everybody is sinning. And, and, And God has said at the end of His covenant through Moses in Deuteronomy 28, if you obey My covenant, I will bless you in the land. If you break covenant with Me, if you sin, I will curse you. And the climactic curse in Deuteronomy 28 is exile. I'll take you out of the land. That's what happens in 586 B.C., God calls the Babylonians in. The Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the palace. They destroy the temple. They destroy many lives. And they take the richest and the most powerful into exile. Seventy years later, God restores a remnant to Jerusalem and they begin rebuilding. Zerubbabel, an heir of David, goes in and with the help of others, rebuilds the temple. Ezra is commissioned by God to go back to Jerusalem and to reteach the Torah. So he stands up and he, he preaches all at one time Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And while he's reading the books of Moses, he's got assistants in the crowd helping to explain the significance and the meaning. And then Nehemiah comes and he rebuilds the city. Most importantly, he rebuilds the walls around the city. That's the end of the Old Testament. Except we learn intertestamental period, and this is prophesied in the book of Daniel, this restoration, as good as it was, yes, the the remnant came out of exile, uh, unfortunately, however, this, this restoration was underwhelming. The Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. The Persians destroyed Babylon and then allowed a remnant to rebuild Jerusalem. And yet those living in Jerusalem were still under the power of Persia. After Persia came the Greeks. And the Greeks had control over Jerusalem. After the Greeks... The Romans. 
And at the time of Jesus, we see that, that we still have sort of an incomplete restoration. The glory of God never returned to the temple. Uh, the Davidic monarchy was never reestablished. So the restoration was started but not finished. And, and this is the context within which we ought to understand the ministry of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And, and we can point our fingers at them all day long and say that they were legalistic and terrible. And yet what they really wanted was full restoration. And what they thought was, well, that we must not be receiving the fullness of God's blessing in restoration. We don't have a Davidic king. And, and we don't have the glory of God in the temple because we're still sinning. And so they wanted Israel to keep the laws more than that. They added laws. They said, well, if we just fence off the law and add more laws, maybe eventually we'll clean ourselves up to the point where, where God will bless us again, which is why they were so angry with Jesus. How could He work in that agenda, in that program? He was mixing and mingling with the unclean, with the sinners. God's not going to bless that, they said. They didn't understand. So what can we learn then of the Gospel? Well, Jesus comes at at this point in history and He then fulfills the Old Testament. So let's let's go through these ten plot points again, but take a look at from, from a Christian perspective, what was the Old Testament testifying to? We begin with slavery to sin. We are all enslaved to sin. And the restoration, 70 years after Babylon, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, did not reverse this problem. You cannot have a full restoration without solving the sin problem. Because even if God restored the kingdom totally the way it had been before he destroyed it, he would have to destroy it again because they would sin again. Uh, Unless God comes and does something radical to, to undo our slavery to sin, he cannot lead us permanently out of exile. And so John the Baptist really begins Jesus' ministry and, and he's calling people to the Jordan River and he said, he's calling Israel to the Jordan River and he, he cites Isaiah chapter 40, which is right in the turning point in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 1 to 39 are all about judgment and a, a looming exile to come. Then you have Isaiah 40 through 66, which is all about salvation and restoration. And so John the Baptist says, I need to pick up in the book of Isaiah right at the hinge point between the two. And, and so he, he preaches Isaiah 40, a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight a highway for God. The valleys will be lifted up, the mountains will be leveled and humbled and brought low. God is coming. This is the beginning of restoration. He was preparing the way for Jesus. And He was calling people to the Jordan River because that's where they crossed in with Joshua before the conquest. And and what John the Baptist is saying is, look, we've been sinning ever since we came into the land with Joshua. So that's why we don't have a restoration. 
And so as he dipped people in the Jordan River, what he was doing one person at a time was he was calling Israel to cross into the promised land again. The problem was, how long before the people who were baptized by John sinned again? One day? Half a day? One hour? Half an hour? One minute? So that baptism wasn't going to lead to restoration. But what it does is it prepares an opportunity for the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus comes to John. And John says, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus, knowing that He is Israel's representative, says, no, no, no. Israel needs to cross into the promised land again. And Israel this time can't sin. I'm the only one that can do that. Baptize me. This is to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, when you baptize me, Jesus says to John, we're, we're, we're rewinding the clock. We're going back to the time when Israel entered into the promised land. And I will do what Israel could not do. It's powerful. So how is Jesus, the new Israel, going to deal with our sin problem? The fulfillment of Passover is the Passover of Jesus Christ. He died at Passover. He is the Lamb. And that's exactly what John says. Uh, Behold, the Lamb of God. Just sort of a little side note. These little details really fire me up. In Genesis 22... Isaac was quite perceptive and and his father Abraham says, we're going to go up and make a sacrifice. And Isaac says, but father, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, don't worry, son. God will provide the lamb. So they get up there and Isaac is bound up and he's laid down and Abraham's about ready to kill him. Uh, And an angel stops him and says, no, why don't you sacrifice that what? Ram, R-A-M, not lamb, L-A-M-B. That's English, not Hebrew. Uh, But it's not the same animal. Abraham said God himself will provide a lamb. God, I mean, it's not like, well, God could just find a ram, so it was close enough. It was that that substitute, that ram that was the substitute for, for Isaac was not the fulfillment of Abraham's prophecy. The lamb that God provided was not the son of Abraham, although I guess Jesus is the son of Abraham, but it wasn't uh, I, Isaac, it was the son of God himself. Behold, the Lamb that that Abraham said God would provide, and He does. And and so Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the Passover. He is our Passover. And so when we apply the blood of the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, to our lives, then we are are delivered from sin. And and what we're told is we have every confidence that at the final judgment, the, the wrath of God will pass over us. And so when you apply the blood of Jesus to your life, you are delivered from your slavery to sin. That's Romans 6. You're delivered from your slavery to sin. You no longer need to obey its passions and its directives. You can choose to submit your lives for righteousness' sake. That's something that an unsaved person can't do. Even even the quote-unquote good, kind, unsaved people, they're they're not operating outside of their, their bondage to sin. We are free. 
to live for God. Now, after the Passover, Israel made their way to the mountain to make covenant with God, but they went through the waters of the Red Sea. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we are told that they, they walked through the baptism, baptismal waters of Moses. This is why, and I don't think this is an open and shut case, but a powerful case, in my mind, for why baptism should be a baptism by believers. Israel was baptized. They went through the waters after they had been delivered from sin. It just makes sense then to me that after we apply the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, then we too would would join Israel in that baptism. And when you're being baptized, when you were baptized, what you're saying is, I'm walking through the Red Sea with Israel. I was a slave, but now I am free. It's a powerful statement of the Gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Having walked through the the waters of baptism, having been delivered from their slavery, they entered into covenant with God, and so we enter into a new covenant with God. It's not that sequentially this happens in that order necessarily. We, We are in the new covenant at Passover when you believe in Jesus Christ. And yet, like Israel, we need to be taught what that new covenant is. So, so uh, new believers, they, they, they understand what they need to know to be saved, but then the, the great commission is go out into all the world making disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so what you see there is that this baptism is the first act of obedience, but then the rest of our lives as Christians is, is becoming familiar with the new covenant, submitting more fully to the new covenant each and every day. En route to the eternal promised land, we will enter into the wilderness of this life. We don't just come to faith and then get raptured up to heaven. Is your life hard? Is it unsatisfying at times? Are there times when you you remember the fleeting pleasures of sin and you think, oh, to be in Egypt again, in slavery. Israel went through all of that. Is God's provision ever seem like it's not enough? Because that's something that Israel wrestled with. Here God was feeding them. His presence was before them, and they grumbled. It wasn't enough. We want more than this manna. We want more than these quail. And they were disobedient, and they fell into idolatry and sexual immorality. And we can look at them and say, how could they do that after all that God had done and all that they had seen? Well, be very careful when you get to that place. Do do we not bear witness to all that God has done? How much have we seen? Don't have time to go into it, but I highly commend to you 1 Corinthians 10. Paul's making this exact same point. He says, don't be like Israel in the wilderness, in your wilderness of Christian living. Praise God. Be glad. Be thankful. Have faith. And then he really goes after idolatry. And our idolatry is worldliness. If we're in the wilderness with God, 
it, it does very little good to pretend we're not in the wilderness and to just fill our lives with that which is in the life of every other slave. We're not slaves anymore. When's the last time that someone approached you and said, your life is just so different than my life? And then after that, either, and like, why would you want to live that way? Or you have something that I don't have, even though I have all this that you don't. I wonder how well we're journeying in the wilderness. At the end of the Torah, the people of God were poised at the edge of the promised land. And so we are. We are just sitting, waiting. And we know that on our death, when our bodies give out, where do we go? We go to the eternal promised land. We go, we go into heaven. But until that day, we're in the wilderness. Now, as we proceed in the, in the macro plot of the Old Testament, we have the conquest of Joshua into the land that God had promised Abraham. We're, we're told very clearly, and we'll get into this in the book of Hebrews as we proceed into that in, in the months ahead, that the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham, was a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it's but a, a small parcel of land that represents the new creation that God is going to give to His people. And so Abraham himself knew that he was looking not just for that land, but for a city whose, whose builder and foundations is God. So the capital city of, of this new creation, the eternal promised land, is a new Jerusalem. And, and so what we need to understand here is that heaven is not our final destination, What the book of Joshua very prophetically tells us is that Jesus is coming back to take back the world. And when He takes back the world, He's going to take it back for the people of God. And when Jesus returns, consequentially, by the way, do you know that Joshua and Jesus is exactly the same name? So in Hebrew, uh, Yeshua, that's translated into English as Joshua. The, tra- the Greek translation of Yeshua is Jesus, which is the Greek of Yeshua or Joshua, and we translate Jesus from the Greek, Jesus. So Yeshua, Jeshua, Joshua, see? Now, Jesus, 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 see how that goes? Same name. So, and God said to, to Joseph, you're going to name him Joshua. Because I've got something to wrap up. And so when Joshua, the Messiah, comes, he's going to, like Joshua, the man, he's going to lead God's people to take back the world. And it's going to be bloody and violent. And so the return of Christ is this cataclysmic event where if you are in opposition to God, you will be destroyed from the sword that proceeds from the mouth of Joshua Christ. You can read about that in Revelation 19. Now we have a problem though. I don't think it's a big problem, but this is where it gets a bit like tricky. 
Now, Jesus has returned, but we're only on point seven of ten. And we'll, we, you notice that after Joshua took back the promised land on behalf of God's people, then you have the period of the judges, and then you have the kingdom of David that is established. So what do we do? At the return of Christ, what's going to happen? And again, I don't know that there's an open and shut case for this, but because of the macro plot of the Old Testament, plus the way that, that we here at The Rock read uh, about the return of Christ and the sequence of events in Revelation 19, 20, and 21, and 22, what we have here then, in place of the Davidic kingdom, is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, which is the kingdom of the son of David on earth. And for a thousand years... The Son of David is going to reign on earth in fulfillment and completion of the Davidic kingdom that was established in 1000 B.C. Now, while Jesus reigns on earth, this is, and we come with Him, by the way, so we come back. This is where, oh, we're into very unfamiliar territory for a lot of Christians. But while we're reigning on earth with Jesus... There will be people who were alive when Jesus returned and they will be having children and their children will be having children and there will still be sin in the land even though Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem. What happened because of sin in the kingdom in the Old Testament? Exile. And so the exile that happened in 586 B.C., is fulfilled by the final judgment. That's where this rebellion against God is made permanent and final. The prophets talk about the exile in 586 B.C. as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Bible also means the final judgment. Which is it? It's both. Because one is a picture of the other. And so after Jesus reigns in the world, there will come a final judgment. At that final judgment, according to Revelation 20, books will be opened. Every one of us has got a biography in heaven. And God will take down every person's biography. Oh, and by the way, everyone will be raised back to life from Adam to the last person ever born. Everyone will be raised up and will be caught up into the throne room of God and every single person will be judged. And those who have not uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ, their name will not be in the book of life. And when God opens the book of their biography and He reads it out loud to them, He will say, based on your life, and your rebellion against me, I sentence you to eternal exile. And they will depart to the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. But of humanity, a remnant will be preserved. Those whose names are written in the book of life, like a remnant came out of Babylon to reestablish Jerusalem, so a remnant will come through the exile, the wrath of God will pass over us and God will recreate the universe. He will take heaven, which is the new Jerusalem, and He will land it on the resurrected earth. And there, we are told, Jesus will be the better Zerubbabel. He Himself will be the temple and we will be added as pillars in that temple. He will be the better Ezra. He will not just reteach us the Torah, but He will write the Torah on our hearts 
so that we live forever without sin and without any struggle with sin. He is the better Nehemiah because he is the one who is making all things new. He is the builder of the new Jerusalem. And so this view to the restoration after 70 years in Babylon is a view to us being restored into a new heavens and a new earth and the capital city of this restoration is the new Jerusalem which is heaven which is now on earth. Is that like staggering? The promise of the Gospel And just so you know that this resurrected universe and this new Jerusalem, this is not ethereal, wispy, nothingness. This is substantial, glorious, heavy reality. And we will be there forever in resurrected bodies. These bodies, continuity, raised from the dead and glory added to us so that we can walk right into the new Jerusalem, into the very presence of God, and gaze upon the face of God, unfiltered, unmediated, who is seated on the throne. And His glory will be shining in us and through us. And He will have elevated us with Christ to be above all other creatures in any age to come. (laughs) How are we so easily satisfied? And now that we're in the wilderness, and we know that we're in the wilderness, why, why do we want to go back to Egypt? Look forward. It's so much greater. So much greater what God has in store for those who endure in the wilderness. Let's wrap this up with three take-home points. The first one, which I hope has become evident, is that the plot and the pattern of the Old Testament is the plot and pattern of the Gospel. That It's exactly the same thing. One is in shadow form and the other is in His glorious reality. But what God has done in history and in Scripture is to give us a taste, a view, so we know what's coming. We, and, and we have a worldview and, and categories to, to understand our context. This ought to give us confidence that the Bible from beginning to end is in fact the inspired and inerrant Word of God. This is not just a haphazard collection of, of good ideas. There there is a divine author behind all of this. And I hope that this would transform the way we read the Bible. And I I would hope that it would transform our desire to read the Bible. Like, don't you want to know more? I've I've just sketched out very, very vaguely the contours. You want to you fill in all of those cracks? All of a sudden, the, the Old Testament isn't foreign anymore. It's, it's a picture of our future. Right from Joshua forward, that's prophetic. That hasn't yet been fulfilled. All that's been fulfilled is, is the first four books of the Torah. And that the rest of the Old Testament has its ultimate fulfillment yet to come. So, so as you read it, just invite the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, teach me. I want to be at that Bible study with Jesus. Just teach me. Secondly, and these are all connected, but 
what I hope you've learned this morning is that we know the future. I don't know who's going to win the World Series this year. I'm hoping for Toronto. That's not the kind of future that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the future that matters. Christ is coming back. And if you're not, if you're not ready when He comes back, if you're on the other side, woe to you. We could say it this way. Is our family ready? Fathers, is, are your children ready? Have, have you seen that it's, it's the greatest call on your life to make sure that your children and your wife are ready for this? Because there's, God is, is slow in, in, in sending Christ to return because He's patient with us. He's, he's given us maximum opportunity to, to see this and repent. But when, when the trumpet sounds and Joshua comes back, I'm talking about Jesus, when He comes back to take back the world, it's too late. The conquest. The millennial kingdom. Let's say you only get to live 80 years in this life. You're coming back for a thousand before the final judgment. And then after the final judgment, like Noah and the ark, you come through the judgment and you come out into a new world forever. The final judgment. We have nothing to fear. If you've applied the blood of Jesus Christ, live boldly. Take risks. Because what really matters is will you be saved from the second death? If you've, if you've soaked yourself in the blood of Jesus, you are safe. The wrath of God will pass over you. You will not be sent into an eternal exile in the new heavens and the new earth. The most beautiful place on earth on the most perfect weather day is nothing compared to the glory about to be revealed to us in God's recreated nature. And I don't exactly know how this is going to work, but the cities themselves will be nature. Which brings me to point number three. Therefore, and I'm sort of repeating things. They all tie together. Let us endure today in the wilderness. Let us not fall into the sins of Israel. Let's stop our grumbling Let's not desire to go back to Egypt. Oh, sin is sweet to the taste, but it sours in the stomach. But of course it's pleasurable. Otherwise, who would do it? So make no mistake, you're not going to stop sinning um, through brute strength alone. The only way to stop sinning is to see that there are greater things in store so that the pleasures of sin pale in comparison to the source of your true joy. Until you hate your sin more than you hate Jesus, I think I better word that the other way. Until you love Jesus, I think it's true though both ways. It's just more shocking when I say hate. Until you love Jesus more than you love the pleasures of sin, you won't stop sinning. And neither will I. 
the secret to ceasing in sin is not willpower, it's a love for Christ. And when we are gazing upon Christ and meditating on His promises, it's impossible to sin. You have to look away from Jesus to sin. And finally, then, the big warning in uh, Israel's time in the wilderness, which is captured in 1 Corinthians 10, is the warning of idolatry. We can create all kinds of gods for ourselves. The one that I fear we are most in danger of worshiping is worldliness. What did Jesus say in the parable? That some, some are planted in soil, but the, the thorns and the weeds grow up and choke it off. Let that not be true of us. The world has nothing to offer us that isn't woefully inadequate in comparison to the promises of the Gospel through Jesus Christ. What a God. What a Gospel from the Old Testament. Let's pray.